He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Hey, it's Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Thanks for joining us. We've got um, uh, a guest today that is, I think, has a, a really, really important message for anybody who likes seeing. Phil, uh, take it away. Yeah, seeing is good. So we're uh, really uh, excited to have Dr. Chris Kenobi on today. Uh, Chris has a, a new book out, which I really think is the uh, definitive, uh, you know, reference now on uh, vegetable and seed oils. It's called the Ancestral Diet Revolution. Uh, and uh, Chris's background is as a uh, ophthalmologist and uh, comes at this with a little bit of a unique uh, perspective uh, that I don't think we've really covered uh, on this show before. So really excited to get into it. Uh, Chris, why don't you give our audience a little bit of your background and kind of the backstory as to how you got to this point? Sure, Philip. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's good to see you, and uh, I, I appreciate this opportunity. So, um, yeah, my background is, um, well, I'm a uh, conventionally trained physician, um, like Dr. Ovedia, and um, I'm an ophthalmologist. I've practiced for 24 years, um, but during a good part of that, I was uh, suffering from arthritis that led me down a path of discovery, really. Um, and I uh, began to research nutrition in 2011 after just sort of a partial paleo diet. It improved my arthritis a whole lot. And um, that eventually led me to the work of Weston A. Price in, uh, that I discovered in myself in 2013. And I eventually hypothesized that processed foods which I then understood were driving most all of this chronic disease, heart, everything from heart disease to cancer to stroke and diabetes and so on. And I hypothesized that the same processed foods might be driving age-related macular degeneration, AMD, the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. Now, and so I began to investigate that um, for about a year and a half while I was still in practice. and. I was so convinced that that hypothesis held water um, that by February of 2015, I left practice to pursue that full time. I was kind of towards the end of what I thought might be my career in ophthalmology anyway. And anyway, uh, so I uh, investigated that with a small group and we looked at data of, you know, processed food consumption data tracked by sugar and vegetable oils in 25 nations. and. The data supported that hypothesis in every single nation. Um, that is that, you know, as processed foods went up, as marked by sugar and vegetable oils, um, which are good proxy markers of, of processed foods, and they are processed foods in and of themselves, of course, um, that, that supported the hypothesis strongly. And so um, I, I uh, published a paper on that along with our group and published a book and and then, but eventually by about 2018, 2019, Philip, I just, uh, I, I was 
so convinced that the vegetable oils and high omega-6 diets were driving the bulk of this chronic disease that I went public with that in 2019 at the Ancestral Health Symposium, um, which was held at the University of California, San Diego um, that year, and kind of been on this trail ever since. Uh, so in this latest book, uh, uh, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, it's called, um, basically, I've worked really hard, or we've worked really hard to connect vegetable oils to virtually all chronic disease. So coronary heart disease, cancers, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, overweight, obesity, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, age-related macular degeneration, all of those and more, and, and the autoimmune diseases. It's sort of, as you know, I've, I've basically gathered data to support the hypothesis and that in, in the form of a lot of graphs, essentially. And so that's where I've been over the last few years. Yeah, amazing work. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we'll get right into maybe one of the big questions because you brought it up already. Uh, I would have maybe built up to this, but, you know, the the correlation versus causation. And, you know, uh, we've discussed many times on this show uh, how, you know, that same sort of uh, correlative data was used to vilify things like saturated fat and, you know, how erroneous that is. And so you just mentioned, you know, kind of these correlations between vegetable oil consumption and, and these health outcomes. Uh, but how do we know that, you know, this is actually uh, a causative and a real effect? Well, I think it's, you know, that there's a lot of perspectives to that, Philip. Um, but I, so my perspective is different than a lot of physicians and perhaps a, a fair number of other researchers in that I, first of all, just we, we've not seen any randomized controlled clinical trials with diet that have ever properly controlled diets or controlled diets for very long. And as you know, the uh, most all the chronic diseases that we're so interested in they have very, very long incubation periods. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you don't see heart attacks or coronary heart disease very often before age 40. We don't see age-related macular degeneration very often before age 40. Um, Alzheimer's disease, you know, even much older than that. Um, uh, many of the cancers seem to hit in midlife. And um, really the the longest that any studies have entirely controlled diet is about six months and in very small numbers of people because you in order to completely control a diet you have to put people into a metabolic ward you have to prepare all of their food in a metabolic kitchen you have to track everything they eat they can't leave the metabolic ward they have to be prisoners of the ward because if they leave they can go to mcdonald's and have a hamburger and french fries and coke and this the study is ruined and so we have all these problems and all these studies that really haven't convincingly told us anything about diet. It's primary, I mean, diet and most chronic disease because they can't, they've never been properly done and they never will be um, because it's, like I said, it's impossible to properly control diets in people. Um, so so I believe just like Weston Price did in the 1930s, as, as he observed, 
people that transition from their Western, from their uh, native traditional diets to Westernized diets, he saw what was happening to these people. They developed dental decay, arthritis, cancers, and all sorts of degenerative diseases, um, including, you know, birth defects and, uh, you know, growth abnormalities. And, but he didn't do a randomized controlled clinical trial. Obviously he observed what was happening in nature essentially and that's what I do primarily because that's the best thing that we have. And we can track food consumption very accurately um, over the past 50 or 60 years mo in most of the world. And we have data that goes clear back to the mid 19th century and even earlier on food consumption in the United States. And so if you look at that, in relation to the prevalence or even the incidence or both of all of these chronic diseases, that is powerful information. And it's, I, I think it's by a landslide, you know, phenomenally better than anything we have in randomized controlled trials. Now, some of the random, you know, some of the trials in diet trials in animals, they're very telling in terms of omega-6 consumption, seed oil consumption in animals versus those that do not get those. Um, we'll talk about that. But we don't have, uh, well, I could, I could give you one example. You know, for example, I've, I've, I've got the, uh, I've got a graph right here. I have a few things around me that I need to pull up some data, but, but uh, I'll give you an example. Like in, in one study, um, researchers gave, uh, put, put, uh, 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 rodents, mice, I think it was on multiple different kinds of diets. Um, but the one that, so let me just say they had, I'll just mention three of those diets. Okay. Cause there was more than that, but in one of those, there was no seed oils whatsoever. And the, and the rodents were raised on standard rat st standard chow. And that was 1.2% omega-6 linoleic acid. So those, those mice, I think they were, grew to a typical size. And we'll just call that an average of 170 pounds for a man. This is where they, they grew to. This would be appropriate for, for rodents. All right. So then they had a another diet where um, they put the animals on 19% soybean oil diet. Now, that's 10% omega-6 linoleic acid. Now, let me tell you, this is important because these animals were getting less seed oil than Americans do. We're getting about a more than a fourth of our diet, around a fourth of our diet from seed oils. All right, but anyway, so so they were getting less seed oils than uh, than Americans and less omega-6, but they, they became morbidly obese. They grew to a human equivalent of 261 pounds. Um, and, in, in, and what's interesting about that one was that they gave them 25.9% fructose. So extreme high sugar, all right? So that's where they end up, 261 pounds. Now, a third group was given 19% soybean oil, the same amount, but no sugar at all. And they became by far, I mean, they became the most morbidly obese. They grew to a human equivalent of 277 pounds. So they outweighed the mice on the soybean and sugar oil diet by a, a, a human equivalent of 16 pounds. And this was in 32 weeks. This is eight months worth. All right. So interestingly, the sugar was actually protective, you know, in this study. And, wow. this is, and this is what we've seen in a number of studies, you know, that the sugar actually, you know, may be a benefit over, 
you know, the, the, just these high seed oil diets alone, but there's, you know, this is what I've seen. Uh, well, in- well, let me back up. There's not really yeah. a human, uh, a human analog to uh, those two types of diets. Oh, I'm, I should back up to the type of diet that's strictly seed oil. We we're not getting, oh, I think we see it all. I think we see it all the time. I just, but you can't separate out, uh, you know, on uh, at a population level, who's consuming the higher sugars and who is not. But I think that almost all of the population in, in almost all westernized populations are consuming very high levels of, of seed oils and omega-6. So we've gone from. But with the with the sugar, I think, is uh, what Jack was getting. Yeah, at. that was it's my hard. Point. It's hard right. to consume. Uh, seed oils without sugar in our modern food environment. Although, as you point out in the book, you know, we can find uh, different populations where that experiment was sort of run, you know, that the seed oil was introduced maybe without the uh, sugar components. Yeah, I, you know, you see, you see some of those, for example, um, like in, I'll give you an example, like in China, this is in the book too. In China, um, the sugar consumption is among the lowest in the world. I think they're the eighth, yeah, the eighth lowest sugar consumption in the world. And we've got excellent data. All the data it, since 1961 comes from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the FAO. And so, you know, all researchers basically use that kind of data. Um, but but anyway, so so the the sugar consumption in China was only around 20 some calories a day back in 1961, never elevated above around 80 calories per day. It's two, in the last four decades, it's been only about two and a half percent of their total food consumption, two and a half percent. So again, eighth lowest in the world, but their vegetable oil consumption started off at 30 calories a day back in 1961 and ended up, um, by uh, uh, by 2018 at um, um, 204 calories per day, which was, uh, uh, I can't remember exact percentage of their, their diet that is, sorry. But nevertheless, here's what happened to them during this period. So their cancer during this period increased 3.2 fold between 1990 and 2017. Diabetes increased from 3.7% to 6.7%. So it it increased 78%, approximately doubled, right? Overweight and obesity combined increased from 15.3% in 1991 to 42% in 2015. So it almost tripled, right? Their overweight and obesity. They had a 465% increase in lung cancer while the smoking went down. So these are the kind of things that that I see, you know, around the world. For example, in the United States, since 1999 or 2004, sugar has been going down, um, while obesity and diabetes have taken a much steeper ascent, right? In Australia, um, since 1961, sugars and carbohydrates have been going down, while um, obesity and diabetes go through the roof. In the United Kingdom, sugar has been going down since 1961, while their obesity, I gave you exact numbers, but their obesity and diabetes has gone way, way up, right? Um, similar situation in Israel and in Japan, the data is striking. And we could go through that if you want me to. But Oh, yeah. We, so when Japan's you see- always a good, a good uh, 
uh, population study because it's uh, a very homogenous population and they're geographically isolated. Which one? Japan. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, I want to hear about Japan. Yeah, okay. So so in Japan, um, you know, this, we, uh, we have excellent data on Japan um, on their food consumption. And, you know, we know, first of all, that in the Japanese have been eating um, a diet that is um, very rich in carbohydrates, um, you know, for centuries. We know that, that, you know, they, as some have said, they've lived off of you know, white rice and fish for thousands of years. Um, but and then the Okinawans, again, a subset of the Japanese, their diet for several hundred years, three to four hundred years that we know of was primarily sweet potatoes um, with pork and vegetables. All right. So, again, mainland Japan, you know, mostly white rice, uh, fish and vegetables and uh, Okinawans, mostly sweet potatoes, pork. And vegetables. All right. So in nineteen in nineteen sixty, their um, total calories was twenty eight hundred and thirty seven, and that declined to about nineteen hundred and fifty calories by somewhere by around two thousand four. Wait, the Carbide- average person, the average Japanese, was consuming twenty eight hundred calories a day. Now this is now this is um, these are not corrected for um, for losses. So that's total food consumption availability. Okay. 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 That's what most of the data is presented as um, is total food consumption availability, you know, because there's always some food losses and okay. nobody knows exactly how to track that. Um, all right. So their carbohydrate per- percentage was in 1961, 84%. By 2004, that had dropped to 56%. Their saturated fat, the lowest in the developed world at 7% recently. Um, and their sugar consumption um, you know, in, was 198 calories um, in 1961. It, it peaked at, at uh, 329 calories per day in 1989, and then started going down. Ended up at 283 calories by 2004. Okay, so we've got recently ca- cal- total calories going down, carbohydrates going down, sugar going down since 1989. Um, but the, here's the one thing that went up: seed oils. So their seed oils were nine grams a day um, in 1961. That increased to 39 grams a day by 2004. So it increased four and a half fold. Um, and their and that made their omega-6 increase from 1% in 1961 to 7.8% in 2004. Here's what happened to them during this period. Obesity in the men doubled. It increased from 16% in 1978 to 31.2% in 2010. Breast cancer increased five-fold or approximately five-fold between 1975 and 1999. Diabetes increased um, 345-fold between 1954 and 2007. They went from 0.02% in 1954 of the population to 6.9% in 2007. All right. Macular degeneration increased from 0.2% in the mid to late 1970s to 16.37% in 2013. That's an 82-fold increase. Okay, so again, while the calories went down, the carbohydrates went down, the sugar went down, 
um, and uh, and did I say it? The calories went down. The, their omega six went up, and their obesity, diabetes, macular degeneration, cancer, right, all through the roof, right? What else? Are, what are you going to blame it on? Um, you know, it's the one thing that's going up is their seed oil consumption and their omega six consumption. So, do we know the mechanism? Or at least yes. do we have a theory about the mechanism? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very long, it's a long theory, but I mean, there, there, I think there's many pathways to get, you know, to get to these diseases, but ultimately uh, the seed oils and the high omega-6 is ultimately um, pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, directly toxic, and nutrient deficient. And you put those four, I call those the four pillars of hazard together, and you've got the recipe for all of this disaster. But it's basically list, that. List yeah. those again. Pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, directly toxic, you know, to cellularly toxic, and nutrient deficient. So we could talk about those a little bit, but I don't know if we really, you know, if you want to take the time, but it's it, it's up to you. And well, uh, I think we will unpack that a little bit, but just to stay at a high level for a moment, um, your, uh, you know, hypothesis, which again, I think there's lots of evidence for, I, I do want to point out in the book, you have over uh, 1300 references, I believe. So right. um, very well referenced. Um, but your hypothesis is that it's the linen, linoleic acid, you know, omega-6s in particular uh, that are harmful within these oils. Right. Absolutely, Philip. That's exactly it. The, so the omega-6 consumption, we modeled this, um, the American diet, for example, in um, 1865, before there was any seed oils. And when all of, you know, all of the food would have been naturally raised, ancestrally raised, we didn't have uh, we had no seed oils, but we also didn't have any, um, you know, corn and soy fed animals. And we didn't have nuts and seeds in huge quantities like we do now, which are all things that add tremendously to the omega-6 load. But anyway, so the diet was provided about 2.2 to 2.6 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid in 1865. That was about 1.1% of total calories. So that, without giving you the numbers in between, by 2008, we were consuming 29 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid on average per day. That's 11.8% of calories. So whether you look at it in terms of the percentage of increase in omega-6 or the mass of omega-6, either one comes out to be an about 11-fold increase in omega-6 consumption between 1865 and 2008. And that, you know, to me, everything I see, this, you know, fits with this. Like, for example, I've looked at, all, you know, multiple hunter-gatherer hunter populations, the Maasai, the Tokelauans, the Catavans, the Papua New Guineans of Tukacinta, the Ashe of Paraguay, um, uh, and there's others. And all of these, what I found was that in analyzing their diets, that their omega-6 consumption is all basically under 2%. They're, most of them are under 1.7%. So those that have really high fat consumption, like the Maasai, who consume milk, meat, and blood, and their diet is 66% animal fat and 40 to 46% saturated 
animal fat. Their diet was only 1.7% omega-6 linoleic acid. Um, where are Americans? Well, you know, we're, as I mentioned, we're at 11.8% now. And, um, you know, we, you know, 1999, we were at 7.8%, I believe it was. So we've had this trend, you know, where it's just been increasing since around 1900 as our, um, well, really since 1866, when vegetable oils entered the food supply and the omega-6 has just been climbing ever since. And with that, we just see an explosion of all this chronic disease that was rare in the 19th century. Yeah, and, and again, the omega-6 uh, content is, you know, one of the differentiators, you know, what people will sometimes get confused about is, you know, things like olive oil and coconut oil that have been shown to be, uh, you know, health promoting. Uh, right. And they say, well, isn't that a vegetable oil? Uh, and, uh, you know, that omega-6 content, as well as the process that goes into making it, is what uh, distinguishes uh, that from those oils from the uh, seed oils that we're talking about. Right, exactly. Yeah, so so there, when you start talking about vegetable oils, you've got to get into the nuance because um, it's it's critical to understand that. But the but the seed oils, um, as you just said, Philip, they're they're high omega six linoleic acid. Um, they they range from a, a you know approximately the low in canola oil, which is around twenty percent omega six linoleic acid, to soybean oil that's fifty four to fifty six percent omega six linoleic acid, and then safflower oil at the highest at 78%, 78%. But if you contrast that to, um, to naturally raised animals, cattle, you know, uh, pigs and chickens, their omega-6 linoleic acid on their proper diet will not be over about two and a half percent of their, of their fat. So, so that's what we should be getting is, you know, that, and that's what the whole world consumed was essentially was uh, almost everywhere they didn't have any olive oil, they were consuming nat, you know, animal fats. And that is butter, lard, and beef tallow. And all of those would be um, no more than maybe two and a half to, you know, two to two, I'm sorry, two to three and a half percent um, omega-6 linoleic acid. And again, contrast that to the, to the seed oils, which would be, you know, I'll just name them. Um, soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, sesame, and peanut oils. All of those range from about 20% to 78% omega-6 linoleic acid. And they average, in, in, in if you look at population-wide studies, they average um, about 38%, 38 to 40% omega-6 linoleic acid. That's what's in those vegetable oils sort of worldwide. You know, um, and again, that's the that's the massive change in our omega six consumption, or accounts for that. So, um, just to you know, dig in a little bit more there. Uh, again, how do we separate the um, the the vegetable and seed oils from the processed food? Uh, so, some might make the argument that you know, and you even said it yourself earlier that you know, vegetable and seed oil consumption is really a proxy for processed food consumption. And, right. uh, you know, uh, many would just say, well, it's the processed food. And let's say you just use these oils 
you know, to cook your vegetables in or cook your meat in, uh, you know, is that going to be as bad? Um, well, you know, I guess, first of all, Philip, I'd just say that, um, number one, it, you know, processed foods, I, which I've always vilified, um, they to be are four things. They're refined flours, refined sugars, vegetable oils and trans fat. So to, you know, to say, you know, can we separate out vegetable oils from processed food? I think, well, not really, because they are processed food. I mean, they're the number one ingredient of processed foods on a caloric basis. Uh, pretty much worldwide, to my knowledge, um, certainly the number one ingredient uh, in processed food in the United States, you know, with, uh, you know, 32% of our calories coming from vegetable oil in 2010. Um, so, uh, you know, again, and that's not corrected for losses. So it'd be a little bit lower than that on average. You know, like I said, it's a, maybe around a fourth of our diet, but possibly, you know, up to a third. But nevertheless, is there you know, could you just, you know, consume these vegetable oils in a healthy way um, just by cooking with them at home or and avoiding the processed foods? It certainly would be, it'd be better. It would be, it definitely would be better because the, the, now the heating process of the oils is, it adds to their danger because when you heat these oils, you create the advanced lipid oxidation in products. These are things like 4-hydroxynonanol, uh, malondialdehyde, MDA, uh, carboxyethylpyrrole, acrolene, and there's literally hundreds of others of these, these chemicals that the lipid chemists understand. And so when you heat the oils, you're going to produce more of those. So you'll consume more of those. Um, and, and those are all dangerous. You know, they're collectively those advanced lipid oxidation end products or ALs, um, they're collectively cytotoxic, genotoxic, mutagenic, carcinogenic, atherogenic, thrombogenic, obesogenic, and diabetogenic. So, uh, you know, you can't get much worse than that. So they contribute to all of those problems, but that, you know, that's just part of the scenario. And, and what I tell people, and what we clearly understand is that e even if you don't have those advanced lipid oxidation end products in the oil, when you consume them, you can produce all of those endogenously because you've raised, when you consume omega-6, it accumulates in your body fat. And then um, when you when those oxidize, you'll produce all of those same chemicals. So, so just, just to make sure I understand what you just said. Sure. Even if you're not getting the incredibly toxic list that you just described, um, if you're consuming the seed oils themselves, once they're in your body, they do their work and create those toxic reactions anyway. They do. I realize that's grossly they, simplified, but no, that's exactly right. That, that not, not they everybody do because is. they they oxidize, and you can't stop the oxidation. So the so that in other words, it's the it's the omega six linoleic acid which is an unsaturated fat that is, those are the most subject to oxidation because of the multiple double bonds. So when you, when these accumulate in your body and in your body fat, which they do to very high levels, um, then you're a setup for these processes for the oxidation. And then, you know, and then the inflammation and the toxicity and all that. And, and so, 
that's what I'm talking about. You can't avoid that just because you didn't heat the oil or or cook with it. Yeah, and and I think that's an important point because I've actually heard a number of uh, you know um, a number of people in the space making the argument that you know the oils the the omega six itself um, is not the issue. It's only when it gets oxidized that is problematic. But as you said, once it's in you, there's no way to prevent it from getting oxidized. That's right. It's you know? going to oxidize. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, you and, and you will, and there's no way to consume higher levels of these and not accumulate these in your body fat. That's what they do. Our body is, we, for whatever reasons, we accumulate these, you know, any kinds of the fatty acids, and they are reflected on a percentage basis based on what you've been consuming over the past approximately three years. So, you know, for example, we we see in, in ancestrally living populations, there's four or really five of these studies that have been done um, back in 1969, uh, a group of uh, researcher, Ian Pryor and colleagues, they, they studied um, uh, several populations that, and, and looked at their body fat, omega-6 linoleic acid, and it averaged 2.83%. Well, Americans averaged 9.1% omega-6 linoleic acid in 1959 in their body fat, and they averaged 21.5% in their body fat in 2008. So again, and it's a precise parallel. In 50 years, we more than doubled it? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And what did we more than double our seed oil consumption? You bet we did. In 1961, we were consuming 19 and a half grams of vegetable oil on average per day. 2010, 80 grams per day. So, so again, everywhere you look, you see that as the vegetable oil consumption goes up, the omega six LA consumption, linoleic acid in the uh, in the food goes up, and your body fat. Omega-6 LA goes up precisely in correlation with that. And as I've shown, you know, as I keep showing, you know, that they'll overweight, obesity goes up, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all coronary heart disease, all of these diseases go through the roof in, you know, in parallel with this. Okay. You've convinced me uh, of the bad news. Do we have <laughs> any uh, course of action? Uh can we can we turn the Titanic around and maybe not hit the iceberg? I think so. Absolutely. So the, the bad news, the further bad news. Oh, thanks. <laughs> is, is that <laughs> it takes the half-life of any fatty acid in your body fat is 600 to 680 days. Just let's round that off to about two years. One study showed that you can completely replace all of your fatty acids in your body in three years. So that's better than what I expected it to be. So it's three years. So if you, so this, you can turn the Titanic around, but it might take you three years to do it. If you go from, let's say you're a typical American, you're getting a fourth of your food, and I use the term loosely, from vegetable oils, and you go to zero, and you get, you know, you also eliminate the high omega-6 fats coming from uh, 
CAFO, you know, uh, corn and soy fed chicken and pork, and you, you know, you'd eliminate nuts and seeds. So now you're at an ancestral level of omega-6 consumption. If you do that for three years, you're going to bring your body fat down from, let's say, typical American 21.5% down to where it should be, which is under, under probably 3%. You can do that in three years. And I think you turn the tide on all of these conditions, but it's going to take you a while. And the only thing I know to do is get the seed oils, get the vegetable oils and, and these other things, these other methods. You have to implement those and, um, and, and, and everything else you can do that's healthy in the meantime to support yourself and probably exercise will help to burn those. Um, and, but yes, you'll turn the tide and then you'll, and then you, will drastically reduce your risk of all of these, of overweight and all these chronic diseases. And many people, they stop vegetable oils and literally in six or eight weeks, they're seeing tremendous health benefits and weight loss. Do you, um, are you a fan of uh, testing, um, you know, omega-6 levels? Uh, and there are a number of ways to do that these days. You know, you can do it in the blood, you can do it in the red blood cells, uh, finger stick, home test. Uh, what What are your thoughts on testing these levels? Yeah, well, I wish that we could, um, you know, that we could do what they what they've done in the studies uh, routinely, which is to do a adipose biopsy. So, uh, you know, biopsy the body fat, um, which was it's done with a tiny needle, well, like a sixteen gauge needle, Philip, um, and, and you do it out in the buttocks or in the abdomen. Um, and just get a little tiny sample of fat and you can have that analyzed, but it's, that's not done routinely anywhere. It's only been done in studies, but that would be the, by far and away, the gold standard test. And as far as all the other tests that look at the, the fatty acids in the blood, there's been some good correlation with some of them and not so good in others. And I just have not seen enough evidence yet to to make me believe that the blood studies of the fatty acids are are all that or that they're the best they're, they're an excellent thing to do i just don't know that it that they really are not saying they're not but i haven't seen enough evidence to to prove it one way or another so I, I, i've seen that a couple of them had pretty good correlation to the adipose fatty acids um but i'm just Again, there's just not enough evidence there to convince me that would be the way to go. Is so, there anything? Oh, go ahead, Jack. Um, I, a couple of related questions. One, so you've got this buildup of linoleic acid in your body fat. Its half-life is two years. Um, is there anything that can be done to neutralize this uh, this fat, this uh, linoleic acid when it's in your system while you are gradually getting rid of it? Not to neutralize it, Jack, but you can, you can further protect yourself while you're bringing your omega-6 uh, in your body fat down by consuming a nutrient-dense diet. Of course, that's always protective. So I, I would say, you know, a diet that especially is rich in in any antioxidants, but um, but like higher vitamin E consumption, 
and you know any perhaps any any antioxidants coming from plants that could be beneficial all of those will will help to protect you while the you're bringing your omega-6 down in your body fat um for those of us who don't actually track that stuff give us some examples of those foods you mean that are high, like high in vitamin e yeah antioxidants yeah, well, high in vitamin e yeah so i would say you know uh well animal sources would be excellent for that um i, I mean I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to uh give you examples that i would recommend consuming too um sure. I would say animal sources would be excellent for that you know it could be it could be animal meats organ meats um eggs um uh milk uh whole whole milk whole raw milk um all of those would be would be good sources. Um, so, in other words, the stuff and, and that, that we should eat all the time. Yeah, and anything that gives you know would give you good antioxidants um, that is would generally be considered healthy. So if you you know if you can get those from plant sources, those would be those would be uh, potentially uh, beneficial too. It just um, you know it, it's. Uh... What what continues to be interesting to me is how many different perspectives you can come at this from and end up in the same place, which is, you know, eat real food and yes. mostly animal foods. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and you you end up at the same place. Um, let's dig into you. You're certainly the first uh, ophthalmologist we've had on the program. Uh, and I know you really, you know, kind of came at this because of macular degeneration. And I don't, I think that's something that people don't know a lot about. So uh, I think this would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about what that is, um, how it affects us, and then, you know, kind of circle back to why uh, this approach to uh, combating it is going to be better than uh, the mainstream approach, we'll say, for this disease. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um so age-related macular degeneration or AMD is, as I think I mentioned early on, is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. Um, and, uh, and, and this is sort of where I entered this, this field of nutrition is with macular degeneration because back in 2013, when I was when I had first learned that processed foods are driving all of this chronic disease, and I theorized or hypothesized that processed foods might be driving macular degeneration, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we we investigated that in 25 nations, uh, and the results supported the hypothesis. Well, so the macula is the central retina counts for about the central uh, 10 degrees of vision and um you know the the macula can only be seen by an ophthalmologist or optometrist or wh whoever with a uh, with a an ophthalmoscope or a slit lamp or whatever um to look back there so this so when i when i first hypothesized this philip back in 2013 the first thing i needed to know was is when could ophthalmologists actually even see the retina, you know, in order to, to diagnose it? Because I knew that if uh, if 
macro degeneration is, is a disease driven by processed foods, then there had to be a time when it was exceedingly rare or didn't exist. And so I went back and be, began investigating this. Well, and I didn't know any of this. We're not taught any of this in medical school, as you know, you don't know anything about the history of even your own specialty. Well, so macular degeneration, uh, or I mean, sorry, the, the, the macula could first be seen, visualized in the living eye um, in 1851 because Hermann von Helmholtz had designed the ophthalmoscope so that physicians, ophthalmologists could start looking in, into the back of the eye. And, they, and this technology spread around the world within a decade. And by 1880, for example, there were 86 ophthalmos, different brands, types of ophthalmoscopes in use. And um, by 1900, I think it was over 200. And But anyway, in the first 80 years of potential discovery, and these ophthalmologists, they're looking, they're, they're documenting, they're photographing, they're drawing pictures. In first 80 years of potential discovery, between 1851 and about 1930, there was no more than about 50 cases of macular degeneration in the entire world. And this is documented, and, and, and there's extraordinary evidence that they're, they're finding all these other retinal diseases, but not macular degeneration. And, um, and then macular degeneration just began to really be noticed in the 1930s, in the, especially in the United States and in Europe. And then by the 1970s, we're at epidemic proportions. By, two, by 2020, there's 196 million cases in the world, and it's estimated that we'll be at 288 million by 2040. And so, but anyway, so this disease, it robs a person of their central vision. They're, so the, the vision that we use to see somebody's face or a stop sign or read a book, um, all those kind of things is your central, you know, five, 10 degrees of vision. And um, it, that part of the eye degenerates. And um, so you have degeneration of a layer called the retinal pigment epithelium, which supports the photoreceptors, the rods and cones. And what you see in there is you see atrophy of the retinal pigment epithelium, which causes the rods and cones to atrophy or die. And, um, and you also see um, loss of the vasculature, the choriocapillaris, the layer beneath the retina that supplies blood to the retina. And it's much more complicated than just this, but those are some of the major things that we see in the back of the eye when we look there. And um, and so with that, people have when they have when they develop this disease, they they generally have a progressive loss of vision, which generally they don't notice anything for the first number of years, and they have precious little vision loss. And hopefully it's during that stage that they're, they're diagnosed and what I would recommend changing their diet because there's been almost no benefit whatsoever with the standard treatment, which is, you know, for dry macro degeneration, which has been ARIDS formula vitamins has been, you know, been had, has almost no benefit at all. Um, and um, so anyway, I started, you know, I went public with this theory and this evidence and this uh, uh, and, and the research in 2016. We published a paper on this in 2017. I published a book um, and we've had people following this. And they went from their westernized diet to an ancestral diet in 2016. So we have a lot of people that have been doing this now for six or seven years, hundreds of people that report to me. 
And virtually almost every single one of those has stabilized in terms of their vision loss and their progression of macular degeneration when they follow the diet. And they'll tell you if they're following it or not. So we've got good anecdotal evidence, but we don't, you know, again, this, you know, there, there are no formal studies being done on people yet. So again, uh, I, I apologize for asking the question, but any any speculation as to the mechanism? What's going on that's doing this to the eye? Well, is that's it, really is it oxidation. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all of these things. So it's a combination of <laughs> it's it's a combination of um, oxidation, inflammation, toxicity and nutrient deficiency, just like everywhere else in the body. And so you have damage to the retinal pigment epithelium that comes from all of those things. You have thickening of Brooks membrane, which is a membrane that sits between the retinal pigment epithelium and the photoreceptors, the rods and cones, and that retinal and that Brooks membrane thickens and behaves exactly like an atherosclerotic plaque. So it's doing almost the same thing that what you see in the heart, you know, with the, in a coronary artery with the disease, it's thickening and and it's creating a barrier between the blood supply, the choriocapillaris, and the retina proper. And so this is this is you know feeding this entire mechanism. Then you have you know the the when you're substituting vegetable oils for for animal fats, you have loss of vitamins A, D, and and K two. Right. And so this is another mechanism. So, you know, you actually have nutrient deficiency as well on top of all this. But that's that's the really dumbed down version. What I'm trying to tell you here, because this is an incredibly complex disease and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of arrows, a lot of things going, you know, all, all conspiring together to create this disease. But the bottom line is it is a degenerative disease, just as its name uh, implies and um, it's driven by th by the toxicity and the nutrient deficiency of processed foods. So I think we've identified the what, the when. Uh, we've talked briefly about the how. Um, we've talked about some ways to at least arrest the process, if not reverse it, depending upon how it's uh, presenting in your body. Mm -hmm. I and, and I realize this is not an area of research, but you probably know as much about it as, as anybody we've had on. Let's talk about the who. What the hell's going on here? Why, why, why is this being allowed to happen? What's you know, there's there's always a reason this stuff happens. Speculate for us, if you don't mind. What do you what do you mean the who? And and I'm not following your question really, Jack. If I think what Jack's getting at is if, if this, um, you know, and, and you've laid it out so well in the book, you know, but if it's so obvious uh, that these are causing these issues. You know, how did this stuff get into our food supply to start with? And why does it persist in our food supply now? Exactly. You're saying the vegetable oils? The vegetable yeah. oil, yeah. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, great good question. So so it, it you know, this is so this goes back to when 
the first vegetable oil was introduced in the United States, really, and that was cottonseed oil, which which entered the food supply right after the end of the American Civil War, ending in 1865. And the the manufacturers had produced cottonseed oil. Um, so Americans had never heard of or seen any kind of oil before with essentially the exception of olive oil, which was incredibly small amount up through the American Civil War. And so the but the manufacturers of cottonseed oil, um, which, which was just had been used as a lamp oil and machine oil and then fertilizer and then and then cattle feed. They figured out that they could feed it to cattle and the cattle didn't die. So they wanted to they wanted to make profit. That's what the, the whole goal is profit. It's always profit. And so they decided to try to sell it. Um, for you know human consumption, but Americans weren't buying. It didn't make any sense to them to use a machine oil or a lamp oil um, for food, right? And so they because that's that's the case. If and, and if you would have said the term vegetable oil in 1865 or 1866, nobody would have anywhere on the planet would have known what you're talking about because there was no the term didn't exist. It came about in the in the, in the early 20th century, but anyway, so they couldn't sell it to people to use as food. So they first began to adulterate, they, they, they created margarine. Um, and that's a mixture of butter and an oil, like cottonseed oil. And, and then they began to adulterate uh, olive oil with it and sell it. Because again, people were, they, people were buying olive oil. Um, they weren't buying cottonseed oil. So they mixed it together and sold it. And there was complaint that came out of France in 1880 we'd sent over, I think, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil, and they knew it wasn't olive oil. Um, it was adulterated olive oil, and they could they knew that just by tasting it. And then they took, and then so then Procter and Gamble in the early 1900s they began experimenting with cottonseed oil, and uh, they they worked with uh, German chemist E. C. Kaiser, who helped them to hi partially hydrogenate the oil to produce what looked like lard and that was Crisco. And so Crisco contains the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, partially hydrogenated oil, which is trans fat, right? And so these are the things, this is how they got it into the food supply. They margarine, they adulteration and then Crisco. And, the, and, it, and then it just gradually grew and all of the other vegetable oils then came into use. To, they went, Once they were making so much money out of these other oils, cottonseed oil and then soybean oil in 1909, and then we got all the others, corn, canola, cottonseed, grapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, right? All those. And gradually increased and people gradually got sick while they told us that they're healthy, right? And then, you know, by the 1950s and 1960s, we, you know, then this is when um, the American Heart Association. Uh, um, uh, Ansel Keys comes along. And, and yes, exactly. That's it. Then we go into that story, which I won't go into. That's why I was pausing. I don't know if they even go there, but but Ansel Keys, American Heart Association, all, you know, figure out that vegetable oils make the cholesterol go down. And indeed they do. And so for that reason alone, that's that's the only reason they've really ever had, as far as I can tell, to recommend vegetable oils. And this is how they get away with it still today is total cholesterol does go down when you substitute vegetable oils for saturated animal fat. Right, Philip? And with that alone, 
that, you know, that that's still the argument that they're using today to tell us to consume these. So you've got all of the major organizations. You've got Harvard, Tufts, Mayo Clinic, um, Cleveland Clinic, American Heart Association. They're all telling us the same thing. Consume these vegetable oils. They're healthy. They make your cholesterol go down and they're good for your heart. Right. And and they're good and they're good for you. And so this is how they continue to get away with this. Um, but they're not going to get away with it forever. I mean, because more and more and more people are are you see it everywhere are beginning to understand this, this story and the fact that we've been fed a lie for 60 years. Uh, and uh, we're, that, the, the, you know, the, the people wise up to this. So um, along those lines, then, what are your thoughts about some of the recent efforts to uh, maybe create a better uh, vegetable and seed oil? So a low linoleic acid, uh, you know, manufactured oil. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't really know how, why we should do that, Philip. It doesn't make any sense to me that we should ever go down that path. Um, because I think it would be another experiment. I think it would just be kind of like going back to, you know, Crisco um, or when we first when we first introduced cottonseed oil, you know, it's an experiment on the people. And we don't we you know we don't have any reason to do that when we have good, healthy animal fats. You know, we still have lard, butter and beef tallow when they're especially when they're all properly raised. That would be very, very, very healthy. And if everybody just substituted butter um, for their vegetable oils, and if they just got the vegetable oils out of their diet, I think we'd I think we'd solve eighty to ninety percent of our chronic disease with that. When one fell swoop, that's all we'd have to do. There's our uh, there's our pull quote right there. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, that's my belief. That's I I, I may be biased, but this is what I've been investigating for a decade. You know, so I'm I may be biased, but that's but everything I see still leads me to this conclusion. Well, I haven't studied it, but you know, I I began observing in the early '80s. Uh, it it just seemed like people started getting slowly fatter, mm -hmm. and um. I know that the early 80s is also about the time that high fructose corn syrup took over from, from sugar as the preferred sweetener in manufactured foods. And as I've pondered it over the years, um, it seemed to me that many of the things that we vilified, uh, it just didn't stand up to observational evidence. But the one thing that that's been a constant in the increase in just general ill health has been uh, the introduction of what I think of as just artificial food things has mm -hmm. for the last 40 years. I've, I, I've seen it over and over and over and over and over. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would I wish you'd find something happy to tell me to end this year. Because frankly, I'm a little depressed. Well, uh, I don't think you should be. We, you know, we we've got when you when you know the cause, then you know what to do about it, right? And that's the brilliant of the, and it's so simple. I mean, there there's a very simple answer. You know, number one is just get rid of processed foods. That's you know, refined flours, sugars, and vegetable oils. That just basically all you need to do is try to eliminate those 
or just eliminate those. And now you're 90% of the way there for most people. And, and, and probably, you know, you've solved most all of your risk for these chronic diseases. So I think it's, uh, it's um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and it's bright and it's, the potential is great to reverse all of this, but you have to understand what it is. And by the way, Jack, when, you know, you're right, we've seen a huge explosion of obesity since 1980. And this is, a lot, you know, a lot of uh, researchers or, you know, authors, they pin this on the fact that we were told to go low fat in 1980. Our dietary guidelines told us that. And that's what we did. We followed what we were told to do. We did drop our fat down from something like 41% to 33% over the next decade. And we, and we got a lot more obese and sick and diabetic and all that. But the thing that kept going up was the vegetable oils. So while our fat consumption went down, we were replacing more of our animal fat with vegetable oils. That's exactly what we did. And that's what we continue to do through the most, at least the most recent data proves that that's the case. All right. So get rid of the, get rid of the processed foods, eat whole real foods. Phil, I feel like we've heard this somewhere. I think, I think we've said it. We've heard it once or twice, certainly. Uh, and like I said, you know, you can come at it from all the different angles we've, we've heard about, you know, we've heard from so many different, you know, medical specialties now uh, on this show and it's amazing how it all leads back to the same place. It does. It absolutely does. You know, whether whether you're talking heart health or brain health or eye health or you know stopping you know preventing cancer and reversing obesity, it's always the it all comes back to the same answer. And it's yeah, get getting rid of the processed foods. And to me, that's the the beauty of this is in the simplicity of it. I'm not saying it's not easy to do. And I think we, you know, it's hard to navigate our food supply today because it's so complex. Um, but, but it's, but if with a few fundamental principles, I think you can make a massive headway very easily and you can do it today. You know, for those who are on a standard American diet, they could, they can begin today. They can, they can you know, stop this, the vegetable oil consumption today. Um, that's a massive step right there. Very good. Excellent. Well, again, the book uh, is uh, widely available now, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Uh, where else can uh, people uh, find you and connect with you, Chris? Um, so the um, w- we have two foundations, uh, the Ancestral Health Foundation and Cure AMD Foundation. You can find those um, online. Well, the Ancestral Health Foundation, that website's not quite available yet, but will be very soon. Um, we do have um, Facebook pages, um, Twitter pages for those, and Instagram for those foundations. And um, and people could find me with a lot of uh, YouTube videos, you know, presentations and podcasts. Um, and um, anyway, but... Philip and Jack, I want to thank you for this opportunity, and um, I appreciate being able to be on your show. Well, we appreciate your work, uh, both the research and the publication, and uh, 
if if we haven't made the point yet, well, by golly, we'll just we'll just keep working at it. <laughs> Dr. Chris Kenobi, that's K-N-O-B-B-E for our listeners. The contact information will be in the show notes. Uh, go ahead and press that subscribe button so you get updated every time we get a new show out. They drop every Tuesday. And I think we're done today, Phil. Thank you, Jack. All right. We'll talk to you all later. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Philip. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.